Hey Swamp Folk, welcome to another episode. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true horrifying stories from the state of Maryland. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the reddit r slash thedarkswamp. Be sure to hit that like button, subscribe if you're new, and get ready for these creepy, allegedly true, and downright creepy Maryland horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. Crazy Trucker by Victoria Red. This event occurred on a summer evening. My mother was driving with me and shotgun and my twin sister and my little brother in the back. We were going to our family's cabin in western Maryland, four hours away from our home in Pennsylvania at the time. Cass and I were 12. My brother was much younger and asleep in his booster seat. Camping in western Maryland was our favorite place. So we were all very excited, including my mother. Now, the car ride, on the other hand, was always miserable. It was hot with no AC in the car, and we didn't have phones back then. So the few music stations we picked up on the radio that wasn't religious gospel and idle conversation were the only thing that we had for about four of those hours. So, more often than not, Cass and I would stare out the window, making up stories about the people we saw and where they were going. And when we drove by truckers, we would try to get them to blow their horns, which was always very satisfying when they'd oblige. But that's where the trouble really began. Cass and I were early bloomers, so by 12 we were already looking much older than we were and getting a lot of attention from older men wherever we went, much to my mother's annoyance. At the time, we were around two hours away from our cabin when I made eye contact with a trucker and put my hand in the tug motion of the horn on those semi-trucks. He grinned at me and immediately obliged, which made me smile back. But he didn't stop staring and driving next to us. He had seen Cass behind me, my mother, and me, and unfortunately he decided he liked what he saw. I didn't know what some of the gestures he was doing meant until I was much older, and let's just say he was being, um, very vulgar. When my mom noticed, she told me to keep my eyes down and not encourage him by continuing to look. My mother attempted to slow down so he would pass us, but he also slowed down, staying level with us. Finally, my mother sped up and forced herself in front of his semi-truck. He moved into the slow lane and sped up to meet with us again. This went back and forth. No matter what my mother did, he would be there next to us. There were so few cars on the highway with us that day that we couldn't just disappear from him. I glance over, and I can see that his seat is raised enough that I can see his shoulder moving up and down. And even though Cass and I had no idea what he was doing at the time, my mother did. At this point, my mother flips off the man, and the smile continues on his face, growing wider. Now, we're getting to a point where the road turns into just two lanes. The trucker cuts us off, sharply, as it does and ends up in front of us. We're in such a secluded area now, that it would be a record if we even see more than five cars the entire way. The right lane is against the wall of this giant mountain and to the left, beyond the safety railing, is a steep drop-off down the hill. The road is also getting more twisty as we got closer and closer to our destination, and it's also starting to get dark. The man is going slowly now and repeatedly swerves into the left lane as my mother tries to speed past him into the wrong road. My mother is getting angry and presses the gas hard. Now, with us in the wrong lane, he insists on pressing the gas too, trying to match our speed, we're midway past the truck when he begins veering into our lane, forcing us inches from the guardrail. Cass and I are screaming in terror, unable to control ourselves. 
Our brother wakes up and begins crying just because we are, and my mother has a death grip on the steering wheel and has a look of panic on her face. He keeps dipping in and back, obviously enjoying the terror he's causing. Finally, my mother slams on the brakes and we swerve right, almost smashing into the mountain wall. We stop then, angled towards the mountain. He doesn't stop and keeps moving forward. I can hear nothing but my heartbeat pounding in my ears. My mother is trembling and takes a deep breath. She doesn't look at us, but my mother struggles to look back up and get back on the road. I become terrified for a moment that even after avoiding being forced off the side of the cliff, we might end up falling backward anyway. After three attempts of backing up and pulling forward, we finally managed to pull back into the right lane, going no more than 30 miles per hour. I'm already prone to getting car sick, so I grab the plastic bag in my seat and I begin to puke my guts up from fear. My mother rolls down our windows and we drive in silence until we get to the last stop before our cabin, only about 45 minutes away. It's this little rural, run-down gas station, but it'll do. We clean up and I brush my teeth in the dim bathroom, and we leave, now in complete darkness. The police in that area are notoriously unhelpful, so we don't even bother. Not to mention that cell reception is unheard of. We drive in silence the rest of the way there. When we finally get in that night, Cass and I try to talk about it, but my mom shuts it down immediately. She tells us that she was used to men being creepy like that to her, and that it had nothing to do with us, snapping that there's no reason a grown man would be looking at us like that. Anyways, she builds a campfire for herself and gets super stoned, making us go to bed as she calms down outside. Anyway, I'm just glad that we didn't die by being forced off the side of that mountain or even being smashed into the side of that hill that evening. Even though very few cars drove in that area, we were lucky that someone didn't whip around one of those curves and smash into us while we were stuck in the wrong lane. To this day, Cass and I have major anxiety about driving, and even just being near semi-trucks sets us both into an overwhelming panic. After that evening, no matter how boring the trip is to us or to you, definitely don't mess with truckers. A Terrifying Spirit by Anonymous I am an 18-year-old female who now lives with my fiancé. When we first started dating, he had just moved to Maryland from Seattle, so his house was new to him. A few weeks after we started seeing each other, he told me he was hearing tapping noises on his bedroom wall. At least once a week, he would report hearing footsteps in the hallway or tapping on the wall. Once I started sleeping over at his place, the activity seemingly increased. It began with hearing footsteps out in the hallway. Just to get an idea of how disturbing this is, the hallway outside his room is tile, and we would hear bare feet slapping on the tile when we knew no one else was in the house. Late one night, I went to the bathroom down the hall. I didn't bother to turn the hall light on, so I didn't find it strange when I saw a large black shadow in front of the laundry room. I assumed that it was just the drying rack and paid no attention. About an hour later, I went to the bathroom again, only to see that the shadow was gone. I asked my fiancé if he had gotten up to move the drying rack, to which he looked confused and asked, What drying rack? I told him when I had gone to the bathroom that I had seen a shadow in front of the laundry room, and he turned white. He assured me that he hadn't even done laundry that day. This shadow figure prompted me to look up my fiancé's address on a website called DiedInHouse.com. This search revealed that a man had died in the house in 2010, who I will just call Robert, to protect his family's privacy. So as a joke, whenever something would bump in the night, we began to call out. 
Robert, knock it off. However, whatever was in the house did not like being called Robert, because the activity started to get scary after we began to use his name. Instead of quiet footsteps, we heard running down the stairs to our bedroom. Doors to closets started to open, lights would turn themselves on and off, and my fiancé's dogs began to growl at night. This was incredibly unsettling because these dogs never barked at anything besides other dogs and were so affectionate. One horrifying experience was when I was awake late at night while my fiancé was already asleep. The hall light was on and was shining underneath the door. I heard the footsteps coming down the stairs and to my horror, I also saw two shadows appear underneath the door as if someone was standing in front of it. The shadow eventually moved away just before the hall light clicked off by itself. The breaking point came one night when I was staying at my own house, and my fiancé and I had fallen asleep on FaceTime. Around 3 in the morning, a horrible screeching or growling sound woke me up. This sound was so loud it hurt my ears. I thought it was my speaker next to my bed malfunctioning, so I ripped the power cord out. However, it didn't stop and then I realized it was coming from my phone, which was still on FaceTime. I turned my volume down but the sound was still unbearable, so I figured it must be some sort of glitch and hung up the video call and went back to sleep. The following day, my fiancé called me in a panic, telling me that he had woken up at 3 in the morning hearing this horrible screeching sound. Only, he couldn't move. It was like he was stuck in some sort of sleep paralysis. He heard the ding of the FaceTime call ending while the screeching continued. He said it was so loud it felt like it was inside his skull. While in his sleep paralysis, he saw hooded figures around his room whispering. I felt sick and told him the sound had woken me up too, but I was incredibly freaked out since it continued in his room even after I ended the call. After this incident, my fiancé and his mother saged the entire house. After the sage, the activity came to a screeching halt. Now, we occasionally hear footsteps, but nothing nearly as terrifying as before. We are about to move to a new house, and I just hope there aren't any evil spirits in this house that we will have to deal with. Have you ever stopped to wonder why internet access is so much cheaper these days? Like 30 to 40 bucks a month? It's because internet service providers aren't just making money off of subscription fees anymore. They're also making money off spying on your internet activity and selling your history and data to big tech companies. So what's the best way to make sure that 100% of your data is encrypted and that your ISP can't get a hold of it? Well, you guessed it. ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN creates a secure tunnel between you and your devices so that everything you do online is encrypted. It reroutes your connection through a secure server. This blocks your ISP from seeing everything that you do online. All they can see is that you're connected to ExpressVPN, but nothing beyond that. And it's not just for your phone or computer. ExpressVPN works on all of your devices. It works on your tablet, smart TVs, even your router, so your entire family can always stay protected. I can't stress this enough. ExpressVPN is so simple to use. You can just open up the app, tap one button to connect, and that's it. Your data is your business. Protect it at expressvpn.com swamped. Visit expressvpn.com slash swamped to get three extra months of ExpressVPN protection for free. That's expressvpn.com slash swamped to learn more. Forest Haven Asylum by Anonymous so this happened in February or late January of 2015. 
my friends and I decided to try an urban exploring wooded area investigation. I wasn't really in the condition to walk or run because I had recently suffered a pretty intense concussion. Weeks of research into this place was hyping me and Steven up. The site, Forest Haven, was a local asylum and institution for people with mental and intellectual disabilities. From what I've read, they once committed a Haitian woman with an intelligence deficit. She couldn't speak English, and they thought it was easier to commit her to the asylum and forget. More atrocities there involved dozens of patients strapped into beds with the restraint altering their bones to the point that they looked deformed with congenital disabilities. A lot of kids and mentally impaired adults suffered from asphyxiation. I'll put more links in the description with related articles if you'd like to learn more. I'm talking more about my experience and just needed to set up the context. Alright, so we decided to park on the opposite side of the asylum. If you google it, the first photo you see is a small church and school-like building on a small path leading to the asylum. I'm not sure if it was part of it, but it most likely was. Unfortunately, the entirety of that building was caved in, so the chance of us exploring it was very minimal. We didn't have any rope or anything to pull us up. We decided to continue onward and through some incredibly thick forest and brush. We had to climb over a massive tree on the only animal path in sight. The more and more we walked in, the eerier the atmosphere became. I saw something white out of the corner of my eye, and man, I was not disappointed. White notes, paper sheets, just random paper sheets strewn throughout the primary forest before the asylum. I swear to God it felt like the Slenderman game. Besides my buddy Travis being spooked, Steven and I were in high spirits. Bandanas on our faces, knives in our hands, flashlights and phones. We wore all black hoodies except for Travis. As we passed the notes and reached the end of the forest, we saw the eeriness of the most prominent building on the asylum grounds. It had abandoned semi-trailers there, to rust for eternity. Not entirely sure why though. I ran as fast as we could to the building to stay covered. As we reached the first half of the enormous building, we turned on our flashlights and walked inside. I saw beds those children died on. I saw disgusting rooms with pillows and mattresses that were strewn about. I'm a firm atheist, but that place made me uncomfortable. Incredibly uncomfortable. There was loads of graffiti too. Some disrespectful and others comment on the duality of man. Some of it was racial slurs and swastikas. Steven and I felt so pumped and alert. I loved the rush the asylum brought. Travis took pictures and Steven and I cracked jokes about him being scared. The other rooms were pretty well lit, with windows removed and sunlight glowing through. But this room was something dark, just incredibly dark. It had snowed about one week prior and the snow was almost completely melted at this point. And this day wasn't too bad, it was 55 to 60 degrees. There was a huge ice pillar. I don't know if Travis photographed it or not. I understood that ice wouldn't melt in the shade. But the sheer size of this pillar, from roof to ceiling of at least 12 feet, and a tree trunk around it in circumference, that's when it dawned on me. Maybe I didn't fully understand it then, but a few things that wouldn't happen anywhere else happened at that place. After being spooked thoroughly in the icy dark room, we climbed onto the roof and saw the melted snow in a substantial watery pile seeping through, looking as if it were going to collapse at any moment. We didn't dare walk past the dry areas of the roof and decided to get off a different way. So as we explored the biggest building, we made our way to the main building. As we entered this decrepit, ancient building, it's the ice room all over again. The doors were rusted and broken, rooms tossed and ransacked. I climbed up into a level by myself since the staircase was blocked by some desk and wall shelves. 
I found nothing but sand in the staircase landing. This is in the middle of Maryland, nowhere near a beach, and this staircase was covered in sand. It wasn't concrete, crushed rock, or fine sand. It belonged on a shitty Maryland beach. For whatever reason, this made me terrified. I spoke to Stephen and Travis through a hole in the floor. They had been seeing a security guard roaming the area and we were probably gonna need to leave soon. I climbed the metal barrier on the landing, climbed down and met with Stephen and Travis. We went out a window on the first floor, hid behind random metal barrels or something of that sort, and saw the car drive away. Travis was so freaking nervous that I started panicking. That's when he and Steven took off in a sprint and I chased after them being slower than all of them unfortunately. Even though I wasn't as incompetent shape as them, I sprinted my ass out of there. As soon as we got to the forest, I was about 50 yards deep from the edge touching the asylum grounds and they were about a 50 yard ahead of me, I saw the groundskeeper. He didn't stop chasing after us. We ran fast through the thicket, jumping over branches, avoiding the giant tree and watching out for the abandoned building back to Steven's car. We all got into the car and drove. There were no words said, all of our heartbeats were through the roof and I cannot even replicate how fantastic and equally terrifying that day was. The Morning Visitor by Method Writer 85 I had this supervisor, Kate. One day, we had a discussion that turned into the unexplained and she told me about something that happened when she was a teenager. She tries to debunk crazy things that have happened, but this is one she hasn't been able to. It was the summer after she graduated high school, sometime in the late half of the 1990s. She was 18 at the time. Her friend Billy was a few years older but still lived with his mother in their house. This was in a small city in western Maryland, and Billy's house had just enough land that he could throw raging day-to-night summer parties complete with bonfires. At the same time, they weren't very isolated, and random people from the surrounding neighborhoods would always show up at the party. One day, Billy met this skater kid named Nick, and he seemed chill. Being a social animal guy, Billy invited him to hang out with him at the house. Billy probably also took pity on Nick because Nick told him he was a runaway living at the park. So they would play video games, go on rides, and party till late at night. Nick started showing up every day at Billy's house, knocking at the door at 7am sharp and engaging him in the morning till night drinking. He was about 16 with dark eyes and dark spiky hair. Remember, this was the late 90s. He seemed relatively normal and everything except for a couple of things. The first was that he always wore the same thing, a plain t-shirt and a pair of camo print cargo shorts. Even though he was sleeping in a park, his clothes always looked clean. The second is that he was never seen eating or going to the bathroom, even though Nick drank heavily with Billy. Finally, oddly enough, no one remembers feeling Nick's skin, even my supervisor, who had sat next to him in a car during a road trip. She hung out with Billy and Nick at Billy's house two times, and each time she said her friend felt like something was very off with Nick, especially when he would give off this laugh that sounded very evil and maniacal. He also seemed to get kookier and weirder when they went on road trips and got further away from Billy City. Nick would also never shut up about his father's gun collection. Finally, Billy's hospitality reached its limits after two weeks of waking Billy up at 7am to go party. Billy snapped at Nick at his front door. He said, Look, Nick, you've been coming here every morning for two weeks. You're waking up my mother who's trying to sleep. You need to go now. Please just come back later. Then he slammed the door shut. Nick never showed up again. Billy came to Katie a little bit later with a newspaper article. It was about Nick who had killed himself. Nick had escaped the mental asylum his parents had put him in in Billy's town. 
got to his father's house and shot himself with his father's gun. Billy was initially upset because he felt he must have put Nick over the edge when he kicked him out until he checked the dates. Unfortunately, Nick had committed suicide on July 10th, two entire weeks before even meeting Billy. The Walk by Aspiring Waffle I am a 23-year-old woman, and I am half Cherokee from Georgia. When this story took place, my fiancé and I lived on a large farm in Maryland. We didn't use the farm, but we were renting a small house on the property, and we were free to come and go around the grounds. I was only 19 when this took place, and the only residents in our home were myself, my fiancé, and our cat and dog. Our cat was a lunatic barn cat that I had rescued because I couldn't say no to animals that need help, and our dog was my loyal pit bull, a sweet, cuddly, scaredy cat. She weighs about 75 pounds and is afraid of her own shadow. Our farm was situated approximately 20 acres of land, and our driveway was about a half mile long. So usually, when I would get home from work, my loyal dog and I would go for a walk, and usually I brought my fiancé with me. Not that I was afraid to go out alone, just that he spends too much time playing games. Anything to get him to use his legs a bit. We would walk down the long driveway, and then after that, there was a 12-mile long road through the woods and farms until it finally reconnected with civilization. So it was safe to say that we were far, far from other people, except for our landlord, of course. The first mile was through open farmland followed by a brief patch of forest, and then about a half mile of wheat fields and solid forest for two more miles. Now that you have a bit of the layout, on to the creepy bit. So it started like any other weekday evening. My fiancé and I returned home from work to our happy cottage and happy pets. Harley, our dog, was frantic to go for a walk, so I quieted her, changed into my walking clothes, and asked my fiancé if he would join me. He had gotten home shortly after me and said he had seen one of the coyotes that we have around close to the field by our house. Still, as you may know, coyotes are mostly scavengers, especially out here on the East Coast so I wasn't too worried, and I am very capable of defending myself if need be. I called him a puss and then told Harley that we could go without him. Laughing to myself, we left the cottage and started walking toward the driveway. The sun was going down, the October air had started to get a chill, and it rustled through the cornfields next to our long driveway. The corn was about six feet tall at this point in the year and impossible to see through, so I assumed that my fiancé was just trying to scare me because there was no way he could have seen a coyote in this field. Harley was enjoying her time in the area, tearing in and out of the corn stalks on our way up to the driveway, and I knew that as big of a coward as she was, she would quickly alert me to any danger running by. By the time I reached the end of the driveway, the sun had set, and the moon which had already come out was shining high about the cornfields. It wasn't quite complete, but it provided enough light that I didn't need to use my flashlight or Harley's collar light. We turned left down the road and proceeded across the first section of the field, the first field was soybeans. If you don't know, they are relatively short plants that don't really cover much. Nothing more than a rabbit could really hide in them. Off in the distance, I spotted a few deer, but nothing alarming. So we relaxed and enjoyed our walk through the night air. I threw a stick and Harley brought it back over and over again. Typical dog and owner stuff. We reached the first small section of trees and Harley stopped and bumped into my leg, letting me know there was something ahead. It wasn't a coyote or a deer, but a rabbit that had been hit by a passing car and was still struggling. As much as I hate to say this, there was no way it was going to live, and honestly, it's probably what drew the coyote pack in. 
I knelt by it, using my knife, quickly putting it out of his misery, as my family had taught me to do so in the past. Feeling sad but somewhat relieved that we had only encountered a handful of deer in this poor rabbit, we continued our walk past into the following field. This was a wheat field and the wheat was about ready to harvest, so it was pretty tall and hard to see. The area was quiet, though, and Harley didn't do anything, so I figured the coyotes had passed on. Now, this is the part that you've been waiting for, and I don't know what it was, but here it is. We rounded the corner of the field and into an area with wheat on our left and forest on our right. The air seemed to go still. Harley got closer to me and I heard rustling in the wheat field. I saw three tails circling back toward the forest. Crap, coyotes. The eastern coyotes are small, but in a pack they get pretty ballsy. Harley raised her hackles, and I yelled, Get out of here! Go on! F off! As loud as I could, trying to get the coyotes startled and scattering off into the trees. I decided to turn around and get out of there before they regroup because I was brave, but I was not going to walk into a darkened forest with a coyote pack and a cowardly pit bull. We turned back, and I heard a rustling in the wheat again. A confused coyote, maybe? I thought it must be, but no. Harley was standing stock still, staring at the grain, and I whistled for her to come with me. The high-pitched, ear-piercing, two-fingered whistle that we all know and love. That snapped her out of it for a second when my whistle was returned from inside the wheat. All of a sudden, all of the family legend I had heard came flooding back to me, and I expected to see a small, thin creature emerge, but nothing did. I didn't smell rotting meat or feel a sense of dread. Instead, I was transfixed with fear and curiosity. I whistled again, and the whistle was again returned, very human-sounding, but not at the same time. Against my better judgment, I said, Hello? My voice replied, but in a staticky way, Hello? My hand was on my knife, and I said, Sh Show yourself! There was silence. No bugs, no coyotes, no Harley noises, just my breath. Slowly, the rustling started again, and I turned on my flashlight. I shined it into the wheat field, and what I saw still confuses me to this day. Animal eyes. Green and yellow. They were reflecting off of the light back at me. But what was connected to those eyes didn't make sense. There was a girl, no more than 14, maybe 16 years old at most, crouched in the wheat. She wore what I think must have been some kind of deerskin or fur, and she was naked otherwise. She was skinny and looked malnourished, but almost like she had never even seen the sunlight. Her hair was long and tangled with wheat and leaves. Under any other circumstances, I would have said she was beautiful, but at that moment, she was terrifying. We stared at each other for what must have been a solid minute or so, but felt like much longer until I heard the unmistakable coyote howl from the forest. Both of our heads snapped toward the noise, and immediately I heard her take off through the wheat toward the sound. At that moment, Harley took off toward the house and I went after her. We didn't stop running until we got to the driveway. I finally stopped, not wanting my fiancé to know I was running away from something. I could still hear the howling in the distance, and we started walking at a brisk pace. We made it back to the cottage with no further problems and I didn't tell my fiancé about it, not wanting him to go out with the gun. She hadn't hurt me, so I didn't think it right to hunt her. I was awoken in the middle of the night by that same sound of coyotes, but this wasn't very unusual I guess they were normally outside of our stuff, but I was wondering if she was with them. When I was coming home from work about a month later, I had stopped obsessing about that night and I almost thought that I had imagined it, when I had to slam on my brakes for something on the road. 
It was dark. When my headlights hit its eyes, it reflected green and yellow. It was a large coyote, the biggest I had ever seen. It just stared at my car for a moment and ran back off into the woods. I know this sounds crazy, but I still wonder if that was the same girl. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true Maryland horror stories sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you have a story that you would like to share in a future video, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or on Reddit at r slash thedarkswamp. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories, be sure to download them absolutely for free from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and just about anywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. Don't forget to give us a five-star rating on those platforms as it helps us grow on there, and it's very appreciated. If you're new to the Swamp, why not subscribe and hit that notification button to make sure you never miss a new upload as I upload new videos almost every single day on all things natural and supernatural. I'd love to know in the comments down below what story tonight was your favorite. Be sure to karate chop that like button if you haven't, and I'll see you all soon with another new episode.